Welcome to Scholastic Reads, our podcast about books, authors, and the joy and power of reading. I'm your host, Suzanne McCabe, Editor-at-Large at Scholastic. Thank you for joining us. Today, award-winning novelist Emma Donahue joins us by phone from her home in Canada. Emma is the author of several acclaimed novels, including The Wonder, Frog Music, and Hood. Her 2010 novel, Room, was an international bestseller and shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. The novel was later adapted into a film of the same name and nominated for four Academy Awards, including a nomination for Emma for Best Adapted Screenplay. Her stage adaptation of Room opens this month in London. Now young readers can enjoy her work. Emma has just published her first children's book, a novel for middle graders called The Lotteries Plus One. The book introduces readers to nine-year-old Sumac Lottery and her six siblings, four parents, and five pets. The household is disrupted when a grandfather who has dementia suddenly moves in. We're also happy to have Emma's esteemed editor, Arthur A. Levine, here with us in the studio. Emma, let me start with you. Thanks for talking with us. No problem. First, congratulations on all of your stunning achievements. Um, <laughs> it's really overwhelming. It must be overwhelming for you. Oh, you know, it's, it's, it's been amazing because you expect your career to kind of, you know, if anything, settle down into some dull lot in your 40s. But um, really, it's just gone from uh, strength to strength. I, I've been incredibly lucky. Well, well-deserved. The Lotteries Plus One is your first children's book. I wondered if you could tell us what inspired you to turn toward writing for kids and what surprised you most about the process. Sure. Well, I've always loved kids' books, actually. I never stopped reading them at at the age when most young adults do. You know, I I saw no reason to be cut off, especially in the world of fantasy, you know. So um, over the years, I've always been reading kids' books. And then when I had my own kids, I was reading so many books with them and to them and discussing them with them and discussing what worked and what didn't. So it just seemed a very natural process. So about six years ago when my kids were, I think, um, seven and three, I got the idea for the lotteries. And really my kids have been collaborators on this because they they not only read early drafts um, and and they delight in uh, seeing all the bits that I've borrowed from them and their friends. They started to kind of explicitly shape the project. You know, they're arguing over how the story should go in future volumes, that sort of thing. Your kids were also helpful in providing some of the inspiration for the many wonderful uh, kids' book titles that are scattered throughout the book, right? Weren't some of those like the books your kids were reading and and loving at the moment? Some of them were, yeah. But, you know, again, the, the kids have become quite controlling, really. My son and daughter are now <laughs> say, oh, don't, don't recommend that book, recommend another one. So, so you know... I enjoyed bringing my kids into the kind of circle of creativity to start with, but now it's a bit like living with your editor. You know, mm. imagine that, Arthur. That would be terrible. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about the lottery's household. Is your household as much fun? Not a bit, I'm afraid. No, I'm a real hypocrite. You know, I send my kids off to daycare and then school and then summer camps so that I can stay home writing books. 
Whereas the parents in the lotteries really want to be with their kids. They've chosen to stay home, homeschool them, and have seven of them. So they clearly are a lot more child-friendly than me. <laughs> All right. We have to, I have to interject here for our listeners who may not have read the book. There are four parents who are named respectively Popcorn, Papa Dumb, Maxi Mom, and Cardamom. <laughs> what was the genesis of those names? Well, the genesis of all of this is, is silliness, really. Um, I feel that every family has its own little jokes and nicknames, and, you know, it's, it's very specific little cultural markers. Every family is a little subculture. So I decided that the lotteries would be that um, with knobs on, you know, that um, I wanted parent names for the kids which weren't the traditional mom or dad. Right. Oh, sorry, parent names for the adults in relationship to the kids. Um, and then once I got... Once I started with the nicknames, it seemed like everything got nicknamed. And I, I realized this could put some readers off, but, you know, I was just having too much fun to stop. Oh, I don't think it'll put anyone off. I, <laughs> as, a, as a reader, I thought, I thought they were so much fun. And it is true that, like, there's a million names for parents these days, Nona, or grandparents, too. Like, people take their ethnic names, and they, they take their happy accident names that the kid just said once. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think every family has little little jokes or puns based on the happy accident of a child mishearing or mispronouncing something as well. I think that's very common. So in a way, the names become a kind of a fossil record of the child's language development. Sure, sure. Uh, my, my parents had a friend named jo- um, Jordan, who everyone called Jordy, and uh, I called Shorty. Because uh, I couldn't pronounce that, and he was probably 6'3", but he was called Shorty for the rest of his life. <laughs> That's great. All right, that brings us to Sumac, <laughs> the nine-year-old center of the novel. How did you get inside her head to tell such a compelling story about a family? Well, the reason I picked a girl was because I'm best known for my novel for adults, Room, which is narrated by a small boy. So I wanted a girl this time, and I wanted a much older and more kind of sensible and thoughtful voice because Jack in the novel room is so young and bumptious. But actually, I think it's, it's kind of ideal because Sumac is halfway along that age range of the lottery children from 1 to 16. And um, she's a real observer, and so she's, she's a good lens on what all of them are up to in a way that a more self-absorbed child might not be. And I must say, I, I borrowed a lot from my daughter for this. Um, you know, I, I, I really like those little girls who are watching the world and carefully observing every little detail and trying to, trying to figure out how it works and then obviously take it over. Right. She's so earnest, too, Sumac. She really, she really cares about things, doesn't she? She does. And in a way, I, I was aware that the fashion, as far as I can tell in, in books about small girls, which I've been reading to my daughter, the, the fashion is for them to be very sassy you know, sassy and naughty mm. and irrepressible and madcap. <laughs> but I knew that the family as a whole was going to be so madcap that I actually liked the idea that the, uh, that the narrator would be, would be quite a sort of sensible character by contrast, you know, a kind of still point in the turning world. I love that she cares about Mesopotamia. Mm. <laughs> well, you know, I've never homeschooled, but I have a kind of a fantasy of it that you could really follow your passionate interests and learning would be so much more interesting that way. So, yes, I think she cares about all these subjects she's studying, and she certainly pays a lot more attention to the Mesopotamians than my kids did when I brought them to that exhibition, you know. They kept saying, let's go to the gift shop. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, but what about you? I'm guessing that you were an observant child. You started writing when you were seven? 
Yes, yes. I was writing poems about fairies, and then I moved on to poems about Jesus. Yeah. Oh. Um, I don't think I was as, as good or useful as Sumac. You know, I think I was, um, you know, the youngest of eight, and so very much uh, absorbed in reading books instead of doing any helpful tasks around the house. But I certainly have put a lot of myself into the lotteries, yes. I mean, I'm a horribly educational mother. You know, we can't pass a historical plaque without me explaining the Nazis to my children or Napoleon or whatever comes up. <laughs> Did you grow up in Ireland? Yes, in Dublin. Yeah, youngest of a family of eight. But we were not a, a fun madcap lot at all. We were quite, a, we were like the army. You know, there were times for going to bed and set amounts of pocket money and, um, you know, Seven months. We even had a clothing allowance. Yes, it was quite regulated. Oh my right. goodness! I think you know my reaction to they were the lotteries was not a, at all like my family either. But that was really one of the great, part, you know, f- uh, aspects of fun in this for me was, oh, you just wanted to be part of them. You know, you just you just wanted to live in with the lotteries and you know, explore school that way and have fun in the in the backyard and. Yeah, yeah, I think big families are perhaps more fun to visit than to live in all the time. (laughs) Right. But I certainly did, as a a youngest of eight, I certainly enjoyed that feeling that the house was always buzzing. There were always things going on and dramas and, you know, new new friends being brought in and new activities and new adventures. Speaking of drama, let's get to Grumps. He's the plus one, correct? He is, yes. And you see, that's an example of something my, my kids tried to control. My daughter was convinced the first book should be called The Lotteries, and only then should we move on to Plus One. But I said to her, you need an antagonist from the beginning. You know, if you're trying to describe any culture, you need an outsider. So, you know, we have to have this right. happy chaos disrupted almost immediately by an outsider. And um, this allows me to, I suppose, show the lotteries in interaction with those aspects of the world which are not like the lotteries. So, you know, there's a kind of a gentle mutual education that has to go on between the grandfather and the lotteries about all sorts of subjects. Describe Grumps a little bit for us, if you would. He's, uh, well, I hate to fall into ethnic stereotype here, but he's a curmudgeonly Scot. A proudly curmudgeonly (laughs) Scot. (laughs) And um, I suppose we're we're meeting him at at a point of strain in his own life because... He's recently got confused and suddenly finds himself ripped away from his very independent life. He's a former mining engineer, suddenly plunked down in this chaotic household among many grandchildren who he, he has never even met before. So, um, so he and the lotteries are having this rather, you know, unplanned and, and um, disruptive encounter. And none of this was planned. And... You know, he's, he's offended by so many aspects of their lifestyle, um, especially the fact that they, they follow the, the principle of if it's, if it's yellow, let it mellow. Um, he doesn't care about the planet, and he's just appalled by all the unflushed toilets. So he marches around the house <laughs> flushing them all as a matter of policy. <laughs> That's great. The illustrations by Caroline Hadaloxano are extraordinary. Could you tell us about that collaboration? This was one of Emma's great wishes from the very start, you know, that, that when in our first conversation, um, it was Emma's vision to say, you know, uh, this book, I, I really have always wanted to have a book that was, you know, he- heavily illustrated. Remember that, Emma? I do, because in a way I wrote the whole book assuming that the pictures would be there to help out, because not only do they help uh, help you figure out and remember who all the characters are, but they show all the differences between the characters in a really relaxed way. 
Um, so, so I would have been crushed if Arthur had refused <laughs> to find me an artist. But um, I didn't know who we'd find. And I'm just so happy with Caroline's pictures because they've got this quality of humanness and messiness to them. You know, they're all elbows and knees. Um, I think they add wonderfully to the sense of um, the group atmosphere as well as the individual characters. Right, me too. Yeah. I, I thought she did a great job. She really, really did. And on the subject of illustrators, I know that, like me, you're a great admirer of the work of Raina Telgemeier. Oh, yes, yes. And um, I think um, she's been a, a sort of breakthrough into graphic novels for so many readers, actually. Um, yeah, and, and the way she can make a charming and engrossing story out of something like dentistry. Who would have imagined? <laughs> right. And harrowing, my God. <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat for that one. Um, what books did you admire as a kid? Any authors we would know growing up in Ireland? I, think I there? grew up steeped in 19th century children's fiction. You know, that whole the, the fantasy tradition of people like George MacDonald, um, family books by, say, E. Nesbeth, Noel Stratfield. Um, yeah, I read a lot in that world, uh, a lot of fairy tales. Fairy tales were my sort of primary form of reading until yeah. I was about 14. Um, so, and of course, yes, Lewis, Tolkien, that kind of thing. But I've always liked books about families, especially quirky and odd families, such as, say, ballet shoes. So I, I think I've tried to bring some of that into the lotteries, even though a lot of the content in the lotteries plus one is very modern. I tried to make the feel of it um, quite a sort of old-fashioned big family book. Cheaper by the Dozen was um, one of the... I, that, <laughs> I, I completely thought of that yeah. as well, yeah. yeah. I wondered if you had an excerpt you would like to read for us. I'm sure our listeners would love to hear some of the book. On page 94, it's about two pages. Um, and I think all we need to know in advance is that Sumac is being forced to give up her beautiful bedroom to her newly arrived grandfather. Nobody's here to be interested in why Sumac is toiling up to the attic under a gigantic ball of bedding. Up to the attic she goes. Grumps' possessions are out of spare oom already. His cases standing zipped up on the landing, but the room is still cramped, crammed with boxes of the lottery's junk. A dark curtain blocks out one miserable window. A rowing machine leans against one wall, metal arms out to grab Sumac. The ceiling slants right over the bed, so she'll probably bang her head on it when she sits up in the night all confused about where she is. Then she'll need to stumble down to the third floor for the toilet, in the dark, with a concussion probably, as well as her broken toe. This is more of a bathroom than a bedroom. How can the parents? How dare they? Sumac makes the bed, wearing a fixed scowl. Her sheets don't seem to fit right. She wrenches at the corner so hard she hears something rip. She puts boxes out onto the landing, stacking them up to form a barricade. The closet rail falls down as soon as she touches it, and wire hangers jangle in a big tangly mess. She stomps up and down through Camelotry three times, leaving all the baby gates open because she has to haul her stuff to the attic in garbage bags, and she can't do that and keep Oak safe too. And nobody even comes out and asks what she's doing and can they help her with that? Sumac tosses her clothes into the stiff drawers of the old dresser. No point in being tidy because this room is never going to look nice anyway. She shoves her corkboard and blackboard into the dusty space under the bed. Same goes for her rolled-up, fluffy white rug. She crammed her books onto the shelves any which way, in a double layer, because there isn't enough room for them all. She dumps her dolls in a bag at the back of the closet because there's nowhere to display them. And she 
crosses the Sumax room sign on top of them, she's not going to nail it up on the door because it isn't true. This isn't her room. On her last trip to the beautiful room she's lived in for nine years, Sumac gives it a sorrowful glance. She yanks her gauze canopy out of the ceiling, and she doesn't bother picking up the nail that rolls away across the floor. There, the room looks weird now, a prison cell mural with the summer sky. Up on the third floor, limping into the lounge, Sumac collapses in a swivel chair. And none of the lotteries ask her why she seems too tired to speak. Aspen is play-fighting with her wrap on a big cushion. Cardamom and Papadum are in the middle of a game of slow-mo catch with Oak, who's hiccuping with mirth. Then they put him down beside the sofa so he can practice pulling himself up and cruising around him. How's your new room? asks Cardamom, putting her hand on Sumac's neck. Sumac's being extraordinarily generous in giving your grandfather her bedroom. Oh, wow. That's a good book. <laughs> I'm going to read that. <laughs> I, you know, my characters always sound Irish, though. That's the only annoying thing. Oh, okay. Well, we love that. Uh, my last name is McCabe, so let me remind you of that. Since we have Arthur here, I would love for you to talk about your collaboration as author and editor. Sure. All right. All right, but it's going to be a gush fest. I want to say... Uh, from the start that Emma is my favorite kind of writer to work with, which is not only because she's a brilliant writer, but because she really knows what she wants and what she's doing. So I never have to be afraid uh, of saying anything that would, you know, knock her off balance. Um, You know, we're, we're both quite plain spoken in the way that we communicate about story. And I think it was very natural and easy to say, oh, this is how I felt and this is how I reacted. Um, And, you know, Emma would either find that helpful or not. um, And it it was never loaded. It was just an easy kind of back and forth. Oh, this is important for this reason. So, you know, or, oh, that's an interesting reaction. Maybe we should do this. Um, how was it from your end, Emma? Well, I really felt I, I desperately needed editing this time because I'm a newbie in children's fiction. And I hate when adult authors kind of swan into the genre and think that they can, you know, pump out books for children easily. So I really felt I needed guidance. But on the other hand, I was resistant to any of the kind of so-called rules of children's fiction. You know, whenever I'd, I would read advice, for instance, that, you know, oh, children always like to read about characters who are several years older than them, I would sort of bristle. So I didn't want anyone spouting rules at me, and Arthur never did. But what I loved was that, Arthur, you seemed to, to just get this project from the beginning. You were so enthusiastic about aspects of us that um, might have made, made other editors a little nervous, you know? Huh. Um, so I think I felt that, you know, I was, I was able to listen to and accept a lot of your sort of technical advice about how to tell the story well, because I knew that you weren't remotely timid about any of the content. You know, you were so, so celebratory of the, the spirit of the book that I never felt remotely threatened by any advice. And a lot of the advice was wonderfully concrete stuff like, you know, let's not introduce all the children on page one. You know, I think Arthur said, keep some of them at summer camp. <laughs> so yeah, could they stay at summer kind of, camp another couple of weeks? Yes, or even I, I, I had made a classic beginner's error and I'd named all the pets after trees as well as the children. And I think Arthur pointed out we can't tell the pets from the children. So now um, the pets are named after rocks and minerals. So <laughs> very, very helpful. 
those concrete editing, and I could always tell what he meant as well. You know, some editors are too intellectual. <laughs> you know, they speak brilliantly about your book, but you're not quite sure what they mean. Um, but Arthur was, was very concrete and very eloquent and, and very funny, too. That helped. Right. Well, you, you didn't need, I mean, I knew you didn't need me to do anything more than, you know, just give you my reactions. And so, and that's what I did. And I knew that you would know um, what to do. Um, you know, I never felt that you, you, you didn't, never seemed like a newbie to me. This is so, you know, I, I mean, it, it did remind me of, of classics. You know, it did remind me of Cheaper by the Dozen. Um, it, not in a kind of, not in the sense of the plot, but just the, the feeling of, of the world and the family was so clear and palpable. Um, those are the most difficult things um, to work with you know, to get an author to get right. And you had all that stuff right. It was really just kind of a little logistics in some ways. And then working in with the, with the illustrations and the back and forth about the illustrations. Yes, that was fascinating. Um, I, found, I found it quite tricky to try and sort of read the illustrations and compare them to my text because they looked so fabulous. I just assumed that they were right, you know. So at a few points, we ended up changing my text to suit the illustrations, um, which was fine. Um, no, the whole thing has been such a pleasure, and I think it's really helped me to have the backing of an editor like you, Arthur, who has a, a bit of a tradition of, um, you know, making brave decisions. Harry Potter springs to mind. So, you know, I, I like the idea of an editor who helps to form children's fiction rather than in any sense just chugging along in the vanguard of what's fashionable. Well, thanks. Though I, I really only publish stuff that I read and think, "Wow, this is great." <laughs> I don't. Fe- I don't ever feel like I'm being brave, and I didn't feel like I was being brave about Harry, and I didn't think I was being brave about this. It was just a great read, and it was exactly what I what I wanted to read, and also what I knew I would have wanted to read as a kid. It's those kinds of things. It's really just gut happiness that's leading me. Well, rather let's just than say bravery. some editors I talked to, they talked more about the market. You know, or I remember one editor using the phrase "the end user," Ooh. and that turned out to mean the child. Found <laughs> that a bit of a chilling phrase. That's kind of grim. I've never talked about end users. Ooh, that's right up there with product. Right. <laughs> yes. Um, I wonder if either of you would want to give anything away about the sequel. I can't wait for the next installment of the lottery. Not a word. Not a word. Not a word. It's really good, though. (laughs) (laughs) Drama. This was such a fun conversation with both of you. Yeah. Congratulations. Nice to talk to you, Emma. Nice (laughs) to hear you. All right. Well, thank you again, and congratulations again, Emma. It was such a joy to talk with you. Oh, thank you, Suzanne. It's been lovely. My great thanks again to Emma Donahue and Arthur A. Levine for joining us. And thank you for listening. To hear all of our episodes, go to scholasticreads.com. 